Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 523 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. First, I want to say how great it was to meet podcast listeners in Sydney recently who were kind enough to come to my solo art exhibition. I love meeting listeners in real life. And if you were there, you would have heard that one of my passions in life is that you can have multiple passions. You don't just have to be known for one thing. If you have many interests, if you, you know, many interests take your fancy, that's awesome. Now, about 25 years ago, I read this article in Fast Company magazine. I remember I loved that magazine when it first came out. And it was about this concept of portfolio careers, where you didn't just have to stick with one career as many did in the past. And you could actually have, and you didn't have to necessarily necessarily switch careers, but you could run them in parallel at the same time, and you could have a portfolio of different careers. So you might have been a florist by day, and you might have been a mortuary worker or a surgeon by night, whatever it was that you were interested in. It didn't even have to be a day and night. You may just have certain parts of your day that you were doing some things and other parts of your day that you, you were doing other things. Now, fast forward maybe 15 years after hearing about this idea of a portfolio career, that term became succinctly expressed with the word slashy. And of course, that started off with the concept of, you know, the model slash actresses, like Elle McPherson was a model slash actress and um, quite a number of the other. Cindy Crawford as well was a model slash actress. Remember, she was in that movie with Billy Baldwin, Fair Game. Anyway, so... Um, that's how it started being a slashy, but you could be a model slash actress slash photographer slash stylist, whatever. But it didn't have to be in that industry, of course. You could be a slashy in a whole range of other things. You could be a bubble tea creator slash photographer slash accountant. I bet you that person's out there. Anyway, so we went from portfolio career to slashy. And now the term that's been used in the last few years has been that you have a multi-passionate career. So whatever word you want to use, if you're a slasher, if you have multiple passions, I just think, you know what, own it. I think that's great. But let's move on to my writing tip this week. This is a helpful tip for anyone who is using diacritical marks in their writing. So diacritical marks are things like the accent above the E in cafe or the two dots above the I in naive, if in fact you use those accents, because a lot of house style is that you don't use those accents once it becomes a word that's commonly used in the English language. But if you're a purist, then fine. Now, if you're using a different program or writing an email or writing a word that Word, you know, Word document, like Microsoft Word doesn't know, you have to add the mark in manually. And there are a couple of ways to do this. The easiest is to simply Google the word and then copy and paste it, right? So if you're writing an article about Beyonce, you can just copy her name from her Wikipedia page and paste it at the top of your document. And then every time you need to type her name, you just copy and paste it again. Just make sure you're clear 
that you clear any formatting or you'll accidentally paste it in each time. But of course, this can be very tedious if you're writing, say, a 100,000 word novel. Then you definitely need to find a faster way. On a Mac, it's super easy. You just hold down a letter to show its accent menu, in case you didn't know. And then you either click on the accented letter or you press the corresponding number, you know, the key that's shown underneath it. On Windows, you use keyboard shortcuts and you'll need to Google the one you need and write it down. So, for example, the keyboard shortcut for an E with two dots above it, like the E at the end of Charlotte Bronte, is Alt plus 0235. So you hold hold down the Alt key and you type 0235. We've got a link in the show notes to a website that lists all the most common alt codes you might use. And, well, I hope you find it useful just in case you use diacritical marks in your work. Now, let's move on to our competition this week. Our competition is Why We Sing by Julia Hollander. Now, that's not our competition. That's the prize in our competition, of course. And I have three copies of Why We Sing by Julia Hollander to give away. This is a memoir celebrating the power of song to lift our mood and restore our sense of connection to other people in the world. So here's a quick overview. Singing makes you feel good. Everyone who sings in a community choir or just in the shower knows this and relishes the sense of liberation, connection and sheer joy that singing can bring. In this inspiring and thought-provoking memoir, singer and community music teacher Julia Hollander celebrates our impulse to sing from the beginning to the end of life, drawing on her personal experience as well as the fascinating recent findings of neurological research, she shows how we are hardwired to sing. She explores how our bodies create song and how singing helps children acquire language. She shows how singing is an integral part of faith and how it is embedded in political activism and shares with us her experience of running singing groups with people with dementia and disability and how learning singing can open up a new world for teenagers. So why we sing is anyone who is for anyone who loves to sing, anyone who's interested in memoir writing, or anyone who just wants something interesting to read. All right, we have uh, three copies to give away. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on Monday the 30th of January. But if you're at that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic prize for you to win. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are because this is a cracker. The word of the week this week is pinguid, P-I-N-G-U-I-D, pinguid. I know it sounds like a penguin, but it actually means something that is fat or oily or greasy. So if you're going out maybe for fish and chips for dinner, I hope that they're not too penguin. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course Inside Publishing gives you a peek into the complex world of publishing. The course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, 
pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book's success. Importantly, you'll learn exactly what you need to do to submit to a publisher or agent, including what to put in a synopsis, how to write the pitch for your book, and we'll even show you how to write your query letter or email. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writercentercomau slash publishing. That's writercentercomau slash publishing. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Lisa Unger is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of 20 novels, including her latest, Secluded Cabin Sleeps Six. Also, Last Girl Ghosted and Confessions on the 745, which is now in development at Netflix, starring Jessica Alba. She has books published in 33 languages and millions and millions of copies sold worldwide. Lisa Unger is regarded as a master of suspense. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You're talking to us all the way from Florida, and we're going to be talking about your latest novel, Secluded Cabin Sleeps Six. Wow. Not only just about the novel, but about your incredibly storied and successful and prolific career. (laughs) So, but before we get into that, because I really want to delve into that, tell us what Secluded Cabin Sleeps Six is about. Yeah, so Secluded Cabin Sleep Six is about uh, three couples. There's Hannah and her brother Mako, their spouses Bruce and, and Liza, and their family friend Cricket, uh, and her mysterious new boyfriend. And they're all headed out to the woods for some much needed R&R and a disconnect from their very busy modern lives. And they're ha- all hauling with them um a ton of baggage, you know, in the form of secrets and lies. And there's a stranger lurking. Um, the stranger is running a uh, dark agenda of revenge. And there's a storm brewing and cell phone service is spotty. So what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Now, um, you're no stranger to uh, writing best-selling books and you've got it down to a fine art by now. Uh, so what do you think is the secret ingredient? <laughs> and I know that you're going to say there's no secret ingredient, but I have to ask because somebody said you must ask her this <laughs> in a best-selling book. What is the secret ingredient in the best-selling book? I wish I knew that. I wish I knew the answer to that. I wish I could bo- bottle it and, you know, drink it, drink from it and then sell it to everybody. I don't know what the answer is. And in fact, I just had this question the other um, the other day at a at a speaking event like how how do i measure the success of a book like how do i know when when a book is a success or not and it's such a, that's an equally difficult question to answer because it's not like i mean obviously over a long career you know 20 novels short stories and whatever you have some you know some books do better than others some books are you know are, are you know big bestsellers some not you know and i wish i knew i wish i could go back to the work and say 
you know, oh, this is why this one did this. And this is why this one got that, you know, and I, I don't have those answers, you know, so the only thing that I can say is that, you know, because I've been writing all my life, and I never wanted to be or do anything but write, you know, even since I was a little kid, I measure the success of a novel by the fact that, you know, I've spent a year with it, and I've been able to run I've been able to write it, you know, that I get to live my life doing what I love as like my, my job. And so every time a book comes, you know, in the mail, that first bound book, you know, that, that you get when they, they send it to you from your publisher, that always feels like the biggest thing to me. It always feels like, you know, the best thing that's ever happened. And so that's kind of how I measure success, but I don't really know, how um i don't really know what the secret ingredient is to a bestseller um i guess the only thing that i that i know for me that draws me into my own novels is character you know character is king and if you you can write the best plot in the world but if people don't care about the people um on the page then i don't think they want to read the book as much so that might be you know maybe one of the secret ingredients so this is obviously also not your first crime novel. Not you've you've written so many. What number is this? Number twenty. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> now you said that you wanted to write since forever. Did you always yeah. want to write crime? I did. You know, I've always had this really like kind of dark and twisted imagination. You know, I've always like I I always think of myself as like, you know, the girl in the movies who like heard a noise in the basement, you know, and she's like headed down the stairs to see what the noise is. And like everybody in the theater is like, no, don't go down there. Like, that's me. I'm the girl who's like heading into the dark to see what's there. You know, I always like sort of think of myself as a spelunker, you know, like I want to shimmy into the dark spaces of, you know, of the human mind, just because I want to know what's there. I have so many questions about what makes us who we are and, you know, about the brain and about, you know, all of those types of things. And I, um, I've always had that deep curiosity, you know, um, so I think that's why I write crime fiction, you know, because it's like a, you know, like it's like a crucible where you can really explore humanity and, you know, all the things that contribute to the good, the bad and the ugly. Is it uh, an occupational hazard then that you um, watch crime television shows, read all of the gory details in the news and they're in research, you know, how would they do that? How would they, you know, um, get into that house and commit that terrible crime? Sure, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. And like, that's, and you like, you can't take it. You know, I always, I've been talking a lot about secluded cabin because like one of the things that, you know, inspired the book were like these, these pandemic vacations that we took, you know, we would go to like the woods in Georgia or like Asheville. And, you know, we would just have these, you know, these beautifully appointed places um, where, you know, you're just in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, you know, you can't really take a thriller writer on vacation, you know, like, you just can never stop your brain from like, you know, sort of unspooling the darkest possible scenario. And so, yeah, I mean, I was in these cabins. I was like, wow, this is really nice. But, you know, those lock codes on the door, you know, does everybody get the same code, you know, or like, you know, wow, we really are in the middle of nowhere. You know, what if something did go wrong? So, you know, those are the kinds of things that my brain is always doing. And of course, always reading and researching and, you know, um, 
kind of, you know, um, trying to figure out how things would work and or how they would, you know, it, the most beautiful possible thing, like what what could be horribly wrong here? I always marvel <laughs> at um, crime no- novelists because I feel that even though, as you say, character is absolutely so important and that is yeah. something that really does make a huge difference in lift a novel, the actual plot and the actual order of the information in which it's presented is Mm. so important in a crime novel because there are so many threads that need to be tied. There are so many things that need to make sense. So on that then, and perhaps we'll take this latest novel as the example, when you're thinking of all those threads, when you're thinking of all the events that need to occur, how does your brain work in the planning phase? Do you just write and magically everything is tied together or or do you have a, a more, you know, rigorous process of, of that planning? Yeah, no, I, you know, so I've always, this is how it's worked for me for every book. Like I always have something that I'm obsessed about. Like there's always something that I'm really, really curious about and researching, like maybe multiple things. And in this case, in the lead up to um, Secluded Cabin, I was very, very, very curious about uh, DNA testing. Uh, the technology of it, not 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 the technology of it so much as the way it is changing what we know about ourselves and and what, how we define family and all of that stuff. Like in a lot of my novels, like you know, Last Girl Ghosted, I was really interested in um, uh, online dating and Confessions on the Seven Forty Five. I was like kind of obsessed with social media and like what it was doing to our relationship. So it's like not the technology necessarily, but the way it rewrites how we relate to each other that really fascinates me. So in this case, it was the DNA testing. So I've been reading and doing, you know, um, all kinds of research, stopping short of testing my own DNA. I've, uh, you know, uh, I've done too much research, so I won't be doing that. (laughs) 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 But that was like kind of the place. And then of course the pandemic vacations, as I mentioned. And then what happens for me is if I, I feel like if it connects with something deeper that's going on with me, then I hear a voice or voices. And those voices, I follow them through the manuscript. Um, So I don't have an outline. When I sit down to write, I don't know who's going to show up day to day. I don't know what they're going to do. I have a vague idea of what my book is about. I have no idea how it's going to end. If I knew, I would not be able to write it because I write for the same reason that I read, because I want to know how the story is going to unfold. And so my stories evolve for me very much so on the page, the way they do for my reader later. And that is fascinating. 20 novels. And I'm sure there's an easier way. I just don't happen to have access to it. Like if I were to do an outline, I would just be like, well, I mean, why, why even write it now? Like we know. You know what's going to happen. So I don't think it's like, to be honest, the creative process, like, I don't think it's that different. Like the writing of a novel without an outline or outlining a novel and then sit down to write. It's just like a different timing, right? It's just like a different, it's like, it takes me a year instead of maybe a week. Because <laughs> 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 yeah, everything weaves in with it. And, the, and I feel like a story is like life. You know, like I could tell you what my day is going to be. I could tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow, but I can't tell you about that day until I've lived it. And I feel that way about, about story. So, um, you know, and I, I think also, you know, I've been a reader all my life. You know, my mom was a librarian. 
you know, my, um, my entire education has been focused on writing and literature. Um, so I think on some level, like I've just kind of internalized the form of the novel. And mm. so like, I'll be writing and then I'll just write something. I'm not even sure why it's there. And then I just leave it. Cause I know myself well enough to know that like 50 pages later, I'm going to be like, Oh, that's why. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's almost like your subconscious knows the story better than you do. When you say that you voices come to you, are you talking about the characters' voices? Yeah, usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yes, the character voices. Like I can hear it, you know. Like so, for example, for Secluded Cabin, Sleep Six, like it was Hannah. Really, she was the first person that I that was like in my head, and I could just kind of see her, you know, at the dinner table at her Christmas dinner and like, you know, within this like family gathering, you know, which is like, you know, like all of our family gatherings, you know, idyllic, you know, no dysfunction at all, you know, (laughs) completely without any drama or anything like that. So like just the kind of perfect family gathering that we're all so accustomed to. And, uh, and I could just see her there and I could see all the layers of this family, like her relationship to her husband and, you know, the kind of strange connection she has to her brother. And I could just kind of, I could just hear, I could just kind of hear her, her voice or like her, more like I could see it from her perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and that was the first access point for me for the book. But like, I didn't know that they would wind up going to a cabin. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know about Henry until I was already writing. I didn't know about any of them until, you know, like I was on the page doing, doing the, uh, doing the work. So let's talk about your writing day then. When you are in the throes of getting your first drafts out there, what does your day look like? What time do you start? And do you have any kind of writing ritual? And how do you, do you, do you have a target? Um, I don't definitely don't have a target, but I do have a I do have a routine. And I was like listening to your pod your last podcast about, you know, setting your routine and how how you like to write, how you like to create after like at night, right? And I have friends like that. For me, I'm I, I'm an early bird. I am up by five usually. Um, of course that's so you know, I'm a mom and I think you just saw my dog walk by. <laughs> of course you have your whole domestic life, which is like like, you know, always like throwing up a million challenges to your writing day, right? Like that's just like seems to be what it exists for. And, uh, and the five to noon, those are my golden creative hours. Like that is by far where I am at my most creative and my most productive. So the ideal situation is that I'm up by five or close to it as close to my dream brain as I can possibly get that I get one cycle, one creative cycle in before my daughter gets up to go to school. I have breakfast with her. She drives herself to school now. She's like, you know, a teenager, but used to be take her to school or whatever, and then come home. And then that block 8 a.m. to noon, like that block is very, very critical for me in my right in my writing day, which is not to say that I won't write at other times of the day. And then Of course, as you get closer to the end of a novel, you know, the intensity of the writing, um, you know, becomes such that you really can't think about anything else. So those days can get very, very long. 
Um, and you spend a lot of, a lot of time, like maybe I might be there all day or get up in the middle of the night. Like sometimes my story will wake me up, especially at that stage. And I just get up, you know, because there's no going back to sleep at that point anyway. So <laughs> get up and work and then maybe nap later, but like, you know, all of that. So that's pretty much the way it's struck. It's structured. I don't really have a page goal or word goal or anything like that. Um, you know, if I'm writing, because it's an organic process for me and it's deeply subconscious, you know, when you kind of run into that stone wall of like, okay, I don't know what's happening here. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what's happening next. You have to, I personally have to leave. I have to go to the gym. I have to walk the dog, bake a cake, do the laundry, right? Like you can do those kinds of things. Like absolutely no, you cannot get on social media. Do not go on your email, you know, like anything that masquerades at work and uh, as work and allows you to like toggle out of your, you know, your creative brain and into the shallow work of marketing and all that stuff. Um, you know, very, uh, very careful not to do that. So <clears throat> that's your writing on a more granular level. If you, if we take a more eagle eye view of how you plan your books or the timing of your books, do you have a, a certain um, uh, routine in terms of I'm going to write a book every X period and these are my months that I am deep into writing, these are the months that then I revise it and so on? Do you have, do you plan your year that way as well? Um, yeah, a little bit, you know, I always, you know, I've been doing a book a year for, uh, you know, tw for, 20 year, for 20 years. So there is a one point in the year where things are extremely hairy, you know, where I'm promoting one book, um, editing another one and probably already writing the one that will come next. And that usually happens at the end. That usually happens at the end of the year. So this and, and this time period, usually like January through June, uh, my my books have, you know, over the last few years, they've come out in the fall. So January through June, I really do try to make those dedicated writing months. Um, but like this interesting thing has happened since the pandemic, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, you would have your book tour and then that was it. It was just over. You would have those six weeks around pub where you were actively promoting the book, possibly on the road, speaking, doing all that stuff. So there would be that time around every publication where you knew that like there's going to be six weeks where the writing is going to be really hard. I'm going to be either writing on a plane or I'm going to be in a hotel room or not writing at all because it's just too overwhelming and too much, you know, to be traveling and all that stuff. Um, so like, I would know that, you know, we would have that, but now like with, you know, post pandemic, I I'm back on the road, like physically traveling to promote, but also there is still a ton of virtual stuff that, and interviews and things that just seem to, now it just seems to be expanding. So like this year I have appearances and travel and interviews through the end of January, which is something I don't. I don't usually have. Um, and my edit, you know, the editorial work took a little bit longer on the last book. So I'm just finishing up revisions and I've already started the book that will come next, but I'm not fully in that, that headspace yet because of the other, you know, the other layers of, of work and stuff that have been going on. 
So you mentioned that there's kind of this period of overlap where you're doing a whole bunch of things and the next book's been brewing for mm-hmm. a while, no doubt. Do you yeah. generally fall into that pattern where you start thinking at some point, oh, I need to think of my next book or, oh, that's that's the idea for not my next book? Or do you have a whole bunch of ideas in a drawer somewhere that you then pull out and go, oh, which one shall we choose next? <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I already, like, when I'm finishing up a book and I know that I'm coming to the end, it almost seems like, I already know what's happening next. Like for my, for me, like I, I can't, I really can't not write. (laughs) Like, it's just not healthy. (laughs) I have to, I have to have something that I'm working on or thinking about all the time. I did have one time in my career where I finished a book and I didn't know what was coming next. And so there was like a two or three week period where I just didn't write at all. And it was interesting to discover how much mental bandwidth I had (laughs) (laughs) when I wasn't always on some level, you know, thinking about a novel either consciously or unconsciously. It was super interesting because it had been such a long time to see how much mental energy I had for other things. But I was also like less happy. (laughs) (laughs) It was was like a less happy. I was a less happy human like during those three, during those three weeks. So I feel like it's just something I need to do to metabolize darkness, to understand the world, to like channel my brain energy into something that's productive and not like free floating anxiety or whatever it is. And uh, I think that, you know, that's kind of, you know, how it, how it has been for me, but there's always like kind of something, I always have like something that I'm super interested in or something that I think I know I already maybe, you know, thinking, hearing a character voice or seeing something. So it's always like, kind. it's kind of a continuum. It's like a reading, writing, researching continuum. Mm. But I'm interested to know in those three weeks when you had that extra mental bandwidth and you had nothing to write, did you also feel a lot of stress like oh my God, I don't have an idea. I don't have an idea. I need to think of an idea. I've got quick, quick. I've got to think of an idea. No, I didn't have that. I didn't have that stress. Cause I know, I know, I know I'll have an idea. I've never not had an idea since I was a kid. <laughs> like I know it's there and I don't know why there was that gap during that, during that time. I don't know what that, what, what that reason was, but you know, it was, it, there wasn't a ton of stress. Like, oh my God, I'm never going to have another idea. Like I, I never, like people always ask that question, like, oh, what do you do about writer's block? You know, what happens if you run out of ideas? And I'm always like, well, writers, there's my dog. (laughs) (laughs) It's like writer's block is just fear. You know, writer's block is like just this fear of the blank page or, you know, or a desire to be perfect or wanting to write perfectly right now. Right. Like that's, I think the, the first condition of, of writer's block. Um, and I don't really have, I don't really have that. Um, and you know, like, am I going to run out of ideas? I don't know. Like, I think that the, there are as many ideas and as many stories as there are people. (laughs) Yes. Yes. How could you ever run out? Like if you, if you lost your curiosity about people and what they do to each other, then uh, yeah, maybe you could run you could run out of ideas because you weren't interested in, in writing about people anymore. But I I've never not been interested in what's going on in the world. So 
Now, I think um, what you said before uh, is obviously very accurate. After 20 books, you've internalized the novel structure and and that sort of thing. So does that mean that after you've done your first go, your first draft, what uh, level is it at, do you think? How much work then needs to be done? How much more editing or revision or, or rewriting needs to be done these days? Yeah. So it's interesting because like, you know, you finish it, you know, the first draft, I always think of the first draft is just, is just mine. You know, it's like this organic process. It's, you know, it's an ebb and a flow, you know, I, nobody reads, I don't talk about it. I, I won't talk about the book until right before it comes out anyway. Like I just can't, it's just, I want to let the energy out of it. And, uh, and, you know, I just kind of, I always think of that first draft as being, you know, it's just mine that's mine. But I have, you know, a base, I have a bunch of readers who are waiting for that book. And I have to make sure that they get the best book that they can get. It might be different from the best book that I could write at that time. You know what I mean? So I do my first draft and then I put it aside for a little bit and then I read and I do. And once I start reading it, I do another draft, of course, you know, you can't ever read your work without revising it. Right. And, um, and so I do, so I might do that twice before I turn it into my, my editor. And so I'm pretty clear on what it is. And, you know, that I, when I turn it in, I know that it's the pinnacle of my ability at that time. Like I gave everything I have to it. Like it's the best book that I could write right then. And so I give it to my editor and then uh, and my agent usually at the same time. And then um, I get notes back and I have a conversation with my editor, a conversation with my agent or both. And then I go back to the book with their thoughts and their ideas and what they thought worked and what didn't and blah, blah, blah. And then I do another draft. I do another draft. And the editorial process for me is exciting because I feel like that's the place where it goes from being the best book that I could write to being the best book that it can be for my readers. And that's really important, you know, and especially when you write the way I write, like, you don't know, did you, did you bring everybody along for the ride? Is like the stuff that's in your head, did it make it onto the page? So you really need those people that you trust to say, yes, this works, or what more of this, or this got, you know, got slow here or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So I'll do another draft. And then of course, you know, there's line editing, and copy editing and then I have my final pass on it you know before it's like goes to you know being typeset and then you know I kind of I do this thing where I go through the book and I um I just check every scene and I ask myself you know does this scene advance plot or character hopefully both and that's kind of brutal because then, you know, you ha- you really have to an- be honest about that question, you know, and then figure out if something's still not working or if, the, you know, you ran into like this, you know, place where the narrative ground to a halt. Why, you know, what didn't work, you know, could information have found its way other, you know, and that's when you kind of just make sure everything is is exactly as 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 good as it can be and so that's kind of for me that's the union of of magic the magic of writing which is something that i very much experience and the craft that i have you know practiced and honed and studied and continue to try to make better every single every single book so there's a real union of that um in writing like there's this real union of 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 art magic and just you know just sheer work 
you know, yes, yes. So <laughs> making and making it and, and never getting, you know, never letting it be any less than than it, than it can be. So twenty books later, do you at that late stage after you've done three drafts, your editor and agent have given you notes. You've done another draft again, and do you at that stage still find scenes that haven't moved forward the plot? Or, you I mean, know, I'm pretty close. I'm pretty close to being, I'm pretty close to being where I want to be. But like, to be frank, if I were to pick up, if I were to pick up secluded cabin right now, and like, it was open on my, do- on my desktop, I would just, you know, I'd still be rewriting. <laughs> 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 I'd go back and like anything that was any book that, you know, was open on my desktop would definitely get a polish, you know, like, oh, I could have said that better. Or, oh, this could have been that, that this information could have come out differently or, oh, this, this seems a little sleepy, you know, whatever. Like I'll always be cr- looking at it critically. <laughs> like, I, I think that that's just like, that's the occupational hazard, right? It's like, you just never, I mean, I don't, I've never, like, you know, I've had people, I've heard people say, like, authors, like, oh, I just, I love my book so much. It's like the best book I've ever written. And I think to myself, wow, I have never thought that. (laughs) (laughs) I've never once had a thought that even, even approximated that. So I, and I don't know if it's me or if that's just like the condition of the writer, like, you know, your, your ambition always kind of is a little bit ahead of your abilities or so you see, so you think, or that's how you perceive it. But, you know, I feel like it's still the thing that just kind of, you know, the only thing that ever motivates me is that I believe I can be a better writer today than I was yesterday. And Mm. I've spent my whole career trying to prove that right, that every book I write is going to be better than what came before it. And I, you know, I I don't think I'll ever stop thinking that I haven't yet written my best book. So the novel writing process is such a long one and it Mm. has so many components and so many steps. Which bit's the most exciting part for you? And for me, it's by far exploring character. You know, that's the thing I love the most, you know, like just being inside the heads of the people that are on my page, you know, the people that are like, you know, I don't really think of them as people that I create. I kind of think of them as people that I meet and just kind of understanding their layers by far for me, that is the most exciting thing is like how, you know, how deep can I get? Like how much can, how much can I learn about this person, no matter whether, they're horrible, you know, and deranged and or addicted or traumatized or whatever, even sometimes, you know, even better, right? (laughs) (laughs) Even more interesting. Um, You know, some of my characters, I don't even really like that much, you know, but I have, you know, kind of deep compassion for them. And I just want to understand what makes them, you know, so troubled, you know, and like going, going into that, into that headspace, like that for me is, is by far my favorite thing about writing. Now, one of the techniques you use to get deep into character, which then allows obviously the reader to get to know your character is that you've written in multiple points of view. So the reader really does get into the heads of these characters. So one of the dangers of writing in multiple points of view, which you did not fall into at all, it was seamless, <laughs> That's is that the reader can get confused. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've read books where I just, I just, I'm just so confused. <laughs> so do you, two-part two question, do you think there is kind of like a maximum number of characters before, uh, 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 you know, after which it's just 
too confusing for the reader. And what do you do to make sure that um, uh, it's really clear to the reader what's happening and they don't, even if there aren't too many characters, they're not going, oh, oh, right, does that, which which timeline's that, which, you know. So what exactly. do you do to make, for, for that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because not every book wants to be written that way. Like not everybody, not every book wants to, wants a multiple POV. Like some of my books are very intense, first person, present tense, you know, like one per, one character and you're just, just in the flow with that character, right? And like, that's just the way that book writes. But some books just want this like mosaic. You know, that's how I always see it. It's like that every character is a different piece in the mosaic. And that when you kind of draw yourself back from it, then you'll see the you'll see the full picture and that everybody's piece is an important element um, to this to the story. And I guess for me, it's just like, you know, I always think, you know, I have to go back to like my idea of that, like story is life, you know, and I don't get confused by my characters because, you know, like, I don't know, do you confuse your sister with your best friend, with your mother, with your, you know, the guy you met on the street? Like, they all just feel really different to me, you know, and I feel like as long as I'm having that authentic exp experience with each character, then I feel like, you know, I'm bringing my reader with me. Like if it, I feel like if it was, if I was writing in a different way, like if I was on mm -hmm. the outside looking down on my story and moving pieces around a chessboard and I was just trying to accomplish something for my story uh, with characters, then maybe I could see that it would get confusing. But because I'm inside of it and I'm, I'm exploring character in like multi-layers like there's no way you could be confused between you know cricket and hannah and you know mm. and trina you know like they're so different they're all so different that i, I feel like when they come to the page you may or, you may or may not want to be with them you know they you may they may annoy you you don't like this perspective whatever but like you know you're gonna know who it is. Yes, and, I think it is because yeah. they are so different. And and of course that yeah. that's really essential to in, in order to um yeah. not only not confuse the reader, but to get into the depths of it. But I, I was actually thinking as I was reading, it's also the reference points. Because sometimes yeah. it you, some writers get so into the head of a character and that's fine, mm -hmm. but they kind of don't you leave have any clues. Yet. Yeah, you have mm. to orient people where where you are in the narrative, especially when you're doing the thing where you're maybe re retelling part of one scene that you saw from another perspective, from the perspective of the of another character. So mm. there's reference, you know, reference points. I mean, I wouldn't be able to say exactly what it would be, but it might be, you know, it might be a you know a bruise under the eye or the art on the wall or whatever it is. Like I couldn't at this moment because I'm not doing it. Like I can't <laughs> access like how I do it unless I'm doing it. But like that's kind of you know you do need that skill as well. Like again, it's like you know the woo woo magicy of like I'm in the my character's head and the craft. Like okay, this is how you make sure readers come along for the ride. And then you find too, I mean, you always hear from everybody, right? Oh, I love multiple POVs. Oh, I hate too many characters. Like, you know, and, and that's part of the experience of the writer, you know, like you, you bring your book to the, to, to your reader and they either come back and, you know, they, they love it or they, they don't, or, 
you know, they, they, they didn't understand or they, they, I need a diagram. There's so many characters. Like, I mean, you know, mm. that's just, that's just the way of it, you know, but mm. I do think maybe you could have too many. I probably come, I probably am in danger of coming like a little bit too close. <laughs> what number do you think is too many? What number do you think is? No, no, I don't know. Can there be a rule? I don't, if there's, if there's a rule and you tell me what it is, I will definitely break it. Like, <laughs> If you tell me, Lisa, you can only have five characters, I am definitely going to need seven characters for my next <laughs> Okay. So I love <laughs> how you say that you are constantly trying to hone your craft even more. Even after 20 books, you yeah. are constantly trying to be a better writer. I know that there are a lot of listeners who would love to be in a position where you are one day where the structure and the process is so internalized that it is second nature. Yeah. It's clearly second nature to you. A lot of it is second nature. What mm. I, I'd, I'd like to end on, what are your top three tips then for writers who want to get to that level one day and to make it second nature for them? Well, for I mean, first of all, read. I mean, that, and that's something that you talked about in your podcast as well. Like, you have to read if like when I talk to people and they're like, oh, I'm a writer. And I say, what do you read? And they say, I don't read. Then you're not a writer because th that's where that's where all writers fell in love with story was in the pages of somebody else's book. Every single writer read something that made him or her go, wow, I want to do this. I can do this. I feel this in my, you know, myself, myself. I can do this. So every writer does that. And, and even now, like I'm constantly reading fiction, nonfiction, you know, read books for research, you know, books I want to read, you know, like you constantly reading. So every time you're reading as a writer, you're, you're learning, you're learning what to do, what not to do, whatever it is you're, you're learning. So definitely write, uh, definitely read, definitely write, <laughs> <laughs> definitely make sure you are writing because lots of writers say they want to write a book, or anything. And they just don't, they just don't, they talk about writing, they talk about why they didn't write, but they don't just do the one thing that they need to do, which is to set the schedule, set a schedule for your writing and then honor the schedule the way you would do for anything that was important to you. If you wanted to get in shape, you'd make, you'd make a point to go to the gym before work. If you wanted to, if your friend was in trouble and she needed your help and she needed you to meet her for coffee and you set a date, you wouldn't just not show up. You know, is your friend more important to you than you are to yourself? You know, like these are the things like that. That's kind of the, you know, that's the the secret, right? That's the secret thing. You have to write. You have to write. And you even if you only have a little bit of time, even if it's only like I only have two hours a week, that's enough that's enough to get started and to keep doing something right. And just honoring that is such a critical thing. And then the other thing I like to tell aspiring writers to remember is that, you know, when you look out at somebody that you admire, you know, a favorite author, a bestseller, an award winner, and you think, wow, I like, I I'm never going to get there. You have to remember that, Every single one of those people, no matter where they are in their career, was at one point a person sitting alone in a room with a manuscript that they weren't sure was good enough. Every single person was there once. And so just because you're there right now doesn't mean you're not going to be where your favorite author is, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now. It's a journey. It's not an easy one, um, but it's possible. 
I love it. Thank you so much, Lisa. Secluded Cabin Sleeps Six. So excited for you. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Valerie. It was wonderful. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash creative writing. All right, so before I sign off, I've got a fun fact for you. You're probably familiar with the prefixes mega, giga and tera, which are used in measurement, you know, like megawatt or a gigabyte or a teraliter or that sort of thing. Well, in 2022, four new prefixes were added to the metric system by the General Conference on Weights and Measures. I'll say that again, by the General Conference on Weights and Measures, which is an international body that decides on such things. Well, who knew, right? The prefixes are quecto, ronto, rona, and queta. So quecto, Q-U-E-C-T-O, ronto, R-O-N-T-O, rona, R-O-N-N-A, and queta, Q-U-E-T-T-A. And therefore, measurements that are... 10 to the power of 27 or 10 to the power of 30. Basically, numbers with a lot of zeros. They're the first new prefixes, by the way, to be added to the international metric system since 1991 when Yotta, Zeta, Zepto and Yocto were added. There you go. Fun fact. All right, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to connect with you on social media. Do join our listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It's free to join. I love to see you in there. Some fantastic emerging and established and aspiring writers all helping each other out and sharing resources and stuff. So, Love to see you in there. Or feel free to connect with me directly on social media at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Also, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwantobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.